would ask if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. If you have a, a, a paper copy of a Bible, turn there. If you have an electronic copy, why don't you click there? And as you're getting there, I'm going to give a, just a real obvious statement. If you've noticed, we're in December. If you haven't noticed, there is, okay, so we have been uh, proclaiming Advent, and what Advent simply means, the coming. We're looking forward to the coming of a special one, and that special one is mankind's Savior, Jesus. Now, we're in our second week considering this prophesied coming of a Savior, and He was prophesied. He just didn't show up on the scene and go, hey, I'm here. He was prophesied from, the, from Genesis 3. And we could often, very often, put him in our, might we say, our mindset. We would see Jesus how we want to see him. We don't have a problem seeing him in a manger. That's pretty safe. That's a safe place, and as long as he stays there, we're relatively good with that. But uh, he's non-threatening, he's docile and helpless, but other ways we might see him. I use this statement quite often. You have heard me say it, and most people laugh at it. We see him as a baby in the manger, or we see him as dreamy Jesus. The flowing locks of hair, you know, the wind, the, conscient, the constant wind blowing in his hair, and his dreamy blue eyes. Oh, uh, really? Blue eyes? No. The Scriptures tell us he grew up and accomplished his mission. Yes, he did. And while doing this to many we think, oh, he brought peace. Yes, he did bring peace. But he also brought division. He himself said that. He said, you are going to be divided because of me, a mother against her daughter-in-law, a son against his father, two against three in the same house. Who would this person be? And what would he accomplish? Now, we're given many of these answers by the Old Testament prophets. I, I love the Old Testament. I love it. It is God's Word. It has not changed. It speaks of the one to come. And the New Testament is that fulfilled. What the Apostle Peter said described what we get to see in the New Testament we had the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to the lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter wrote that in one of his epistles. So for us, the Savior who was coming was described by different names, different names in the prophets. 
Now, it doesn't mean when we see his names, when he's, we studied Emmanuel. Last week, we studied a wonderful counselor. By these names, it doesn't mean that he signed his checks by these names. All right? He didn't sign his check, Emmanuel. He didn't even have a Twitter handle by that. These names described his characteristics, his attributes, what he would and will accomplish, what he is still accomplishing. Truths that are helpless to helpless, help us. They help us because they give us confidence when we understand who this God man is. It brings, it brings fortitude. It gives us hope. And that's why our Advent series is called What's in a Name? Last week, we were, remind, we were reminded of the name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? What does it mean? God with us. And we looked how Emmanuel was given as a sign to King Ahaz. We have to look back in the time that Isaiah wrote this because Isaiah wrote it. It's a double fulfillment. It was fulfilled in the time of Isaiah. He went to King Ahaz, and King Ahaz was having this, he was panicked because Assyria in the north was coming down, and they were coming against Judah, and they were, they were going to get them. They were the bullies of the east. And Ahaz was asked to join in a, in a basically a, a triad with Israel and Syria to fight against them. And, and Israel, Israel was bad. Judah was the southern kingdom. Syria was another country. I mean, it makes strange bedfellows. And Isaiah came to Ahaz and told him, don't do it. Ask for a sign. And Ahaz said, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign because I don't want to put the God, God to the test. Well, he was right in that way. But ask for a sign. And he wouldn't give him one. And Isaiah said, I will give you a sign, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, behold, this virgin will have a son. The virgin, last week, we saw a woman of maritable age who has not yet had a child. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Well, a year later, the boy was born. And because of history and by reading further in chapter 8, because the boy was born, that didn't affect Ahaz's decision. He still asked for they still gathered together. They still went together to try to fight against Assyria. And because of that, the country Judah would eventually have to pay tribute to Assyria, and they went broke. Okay, we think we're taxed greatly. They were taxed severely. They went broke. They were in terrible shape, spiritually and materially. And we read last week that it was dark. It was a dark place where they were. But God had not left them, nor does he leave us without remedy. Remember, Emmanuel, God with us. Well, the first name describing the one coming 
was wonderful counselor. And we understand that wonderful means, oh yes, it's great, it's a wonderful thing. What it meant was, it was godly. It was supernatural. When we look at the wonders that God did, it was the wonders that the counselor would do. His, the way that he devised his plans. He had no rival in wisdom. The plans that he would come up with, it, he would be able to answer all of life's relevant questions. He is the answer to our biggest problem, which is what? Sin and death. That is our biggest problem. Well, speaking of a wonderful supernatural counselor, he has a very good idea that don't always make sense to the human mind. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to adjust myself here. The way he, the things he says, his plans, we would look at that and go, there's no way I'd do that. Sorry. You're a created being. The supernatural counselor says, yes, this is the way we're going to do it. And because of the authority of the next name, he has the power to be able to make his plans come to fruition. They come to pass. His name, what is it? Mighty God. This Emmanuel He is a wonderful counselor, but he is also mighty God. Would you stand with me out of respect to God's word? As I read today's passage, it comes from Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land deep of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Our big idea this morning is this. This is what 
I hope that you come away from this morning understanding. Because the Son who has been given to us is mighty God, we can take comfort in knowing that we serve the one who is unlimited in power, able to do great things for us. As we did last week, and we'll do in the next two weeks after this, we're going to ask and answer two questions. What does it mean, and why does it matter? What does it mean, and why does it matter? Well, what does it mean that the child who is to be born, the son to be given, is given the title Mighty God? It's a question we have to answer. Now, I want you to put your thinking caps on, and I don't want you to get your your thesauruses and your dictionaries. Put your phones away for a second. Just put it down. You'll, You'll be okay. What is the definition of might, of mighty? I didn't put my phone down. I didn't put my electronic device down. I found that out because I went to Webster's online. I didn't even go to a paper copy. I went to Webster's online, and I found out this. What does mighty mean? It means possessing might. (laughs) Wow, okay. It means powerful, great imposing of size or extent. And that's accurate, all right? That's, that's accurate. We think about that. That's, that is a mighty, mighty thing. That's a mighty team. It's a mighty nation. It's a mighty engine. Yes, but is that what it means in the Bible? Partly. Mighty does mean having or showing great strength, force, or intensity. But what El Gabor, God, Gabor, meaning mighty, El Gabor. We have heard of El Shaddai. He's also El Gabor. What's it mean? Pacifists, I'm sorry. It speaks of God as a mighty warrior. It speaks of God's military might. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to go sing onward, Christian soldiers, okay? I'm not going there. But it might be a way that we, well, I don't want to see God as a mighty warrior. Well, it says that he is. He's also compassionate and merciful. Those who want God to be a mighty warrior and not be compassionate and merciful, they see that too. No, he is all of these things, but he is a mighty warrior. Hear me, this means no enemy, supernatural or mortal, will ever prevail against him. Do I need to say that again? No enemy, supernatural or mortal, will ever prevail against him. Now, I'm going to take you to a a couple passages because we don't have the time to look at all of them. There is no way we could. But I want to see a few instances where the idea of mighty is shown as a warrior, God as mighty, as warrior, is pictured in the Old Testament before we move to the New Testament today. In Psalm 43, 
Psalm 40, or excuse me, Psalm 45, it says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. All right, so gird, boom, your sword. It's visible. It's there. All right. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. A few chapters later in Psalm 50, again, the psalmist writes, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. He controls the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun. That is pretty powerful. He is mighty. He's in control. And the last example from the Psalms. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Well, back to today's passage in the context that it was written, mighty God has the power to deliver the nation of Judah from the dominant power of the Assyrians. And why is that? Because he's mighty. And because he is immutable. That's a big, fancy theological word that means he does not change. And because he is immutable, he has the power to deliver those who trust in him now and in the future. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is mighty God. When you look back at verse 4, he is the same one who breaks the bonds of their enemies. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He was picturing, remember Gideon, right? In the Old Testament, we saw him, mighty Gideon. You know, the brave, the brave Gideon who's hiding and throwing stuff in a basement, more or less. He's threshing wheat in a basement. You don't do that. Why? Because he doesn't want the enemy to see him. He's fearful, but God says, hey, mighty one, come with me. You're going to take care of these Midianites. And he said, uh, no, I don't think so. I don't know. And what's God do? He whittles down an army from thousands to 300. And they don't take swords at this time. They take torches and trumpets and they go and they break the torches and they blow the trumpets and the Midianites attack each other. God prevails. Just as in the day of Midian. Who could do that? Only God can do that. And only God can intervene in a saving way now. God intervened. He intervened in your life. He has, and he does, and he will. Think with me before we go on. What did Jesus say to those who carried the weights of the world on their shoulder at the time? Maybe the yoke? He said this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's gentle and lowly on one hand, mighty God on the other. Our God is so big. No mere human being is able to do that. No human being can take the weight of the world off of your shoulder. Only God can do that. Only mighty God can do that. Well, let's now move from this prophecy to its fulfillment. And I'll give you these statements. These are conditional statements. So when I say if, I'm going to mean since. All right? So you're going to, it's going to sound like, well, is he really questioning this? No, no, I'm not questioning this. If Jesus is the one who is Isaiah is speaking of, he is. If Jesus is the one who will have the weight of and the authority of the government, the world's government, I might add, on his shoulders. We read that in Isaiah this morning. He will have the authority of that on his shoulders, and he is, and he will, and he has that power, and he does. And the government, there will be no end to this government. There will be no term limits. Once it starts, it finishes. He then has the authority to command and orchestrate his citizens and how they are to live, specifically what our main objective of life should be. Now, I'm looking this way. I'm looking at some, a senior in high school, and she's going, what school am I going to do? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Here's a junior or a sophomore in high school right over here. I have, we have a junior hire that's going to go to high school next year. Okay, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do? Well, I think that Matthew 28 is a really good place to start because it's your marching orders, your marching orders, and your marching orders, and my marching order. Turn there, would you? Because we're going to move away from Isaiah now. We're going to move towards the New Testament. Matthew 28. I know that most of you know that this, but you might have heard this for the first time. This is Matthew 28, and it's something that's called the Great Commission. Jesus, before he was, went up back into heaven, gathered together with many of his people on a mountain, and he spoke this. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority... I'm not preaching on this, but do you get that? Some authority? A little bit of authority? All means all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So wherever you go to school, Elizabeth, that's what you're to do. 
Abby, in a few years, wherever you go to school, that's where you're to, what you're to do. Folks, because all authority has been given to him, and I believe we will prove this in a second, the mighty God. That's what we're to do also. If Jesus is who Isaiah says he is, mighty God, we need not fear. But we do that every once in a while, don't we? What are they going to say? What are they going to think? We must tell others kindly, gently. What is the reason for the season? It is Jesus. We must bow down in front of the one who came as an infant, who lived, who died, who rose again, and now waits till his father says, come and get your bride. I would ask you to keep moving forward in your Bibles to the book of John, please, the gospel of John. And as you're getting there, I want you to, I want to bring this thought to your mind. I hope that you become familiar with uh, Isaiah 9-6. If you hadn't heard it before, you've at least heard it last week. If you weren't here last week, you heard it today. So it should be somewhat familiar. Isaiah defines, I should say, the Holy Spirit defines through Isaiah the four words that the coming Son will be. They are wonderful counselor, mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Four different things, four different names. All of them true. All of them talking about one person. We might even look at this as a diamond. It's multifaceted, a different view, of, a different thought about who Jesus is, who this one coming to, to save mankind is. Depending on what side we look at it, that's who he is. Depending on what side of a diamond we look at, that's still a diamond. The four Gospels are like that. The four Gospels, each writer was moved by the Holy Spirit to write about Jesus, who he was and what he accomplished. Now you're going, well, what are you trying to say here? They were written from a different perspective. It was the same Jesus. It was the same things that he did, but from a different point of view, how to look at it. Matthew. Matthew wrote from a Jewish perspective. He wrote about how Jesus fulfilled the Davidic line, who he was the true king of Israel, and how prophecy was fulfilled through him. Mark wrote primarily to a Roman audience, which was quick, 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 quick. And also, it put Jesus as, portrayed him, and he was the suffering servant who died for the sins of the world. Mark, the suffering servant. Luke. Luke wrote in a way that showed Jesus as a man. Why would that be important? Because this is interesting stuff. You're telling me that God came to earth? Well, he couldn't have been fully man, could he? No, he was fully man, but he was also fully God. Jesus was the God-man. 
and Luke portrayed him as the, the answer to the needs and the hopes of the human race. And John, good old John, good old John, who was probably 85 years old when he wrote the gospel, he presented Jesus as the incarnate Lord. He presented him, might I say, as the mighty God. And that's where we're going to park ourselves for the remainder of the time this morning. As one man has said, and I quote, John, like the rest of the gospel writers, was not writing a biography. He was writing a gospel. He was arranging the material together under the direction of the Holy Spirit in such a way to convince people of their need for a savior, close quote. And in fact, towards the end of the book of John, he gave us the reason while he wrote it. This little bit right here, these 21 chapters, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. He takes the truths that he witnessed and puts them together in a way that, that give us evidence that would cause you, me, someone else to turn to Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, to believe in his plan and accomplish what he accomplished and have eternal life. And that's why Jesus, or excuse me, that's why John begins with John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He begins with Jesus before Jesus makes his appearance in Bethlehem. In fact, he begins with Jesus before creation begins, before the sun was given. And we come face to face with, what? What? The mystery, the difficulty of how he can both be God and with God. How can he be God and with God at the same time? The plurality of the God has a Godhead is seen here. Father, Son. John then begins to lay out the story in verse 18. We're given a little more to process. Now, carefully read this. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now, notice the one who is making him known is called God as well. Now, we're not 
But there's one, only one God. Three persons. The Spirit isn't mentioned here. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God. Who is this God? Well, we're getting a glimpse. We're really going to have to fly through this and then we come to Nathaniel. It's towards the end of chapter, chapter 1. I know I'm skipping a lot because we don't have time for it, but I'm doing like John did. John just kind of laid out what he saw. Remember, if he had written everything, John, he said that not all the books, there was not enough books in the world that could have held it. All right, so we get to Nathaniel, and an Israelite who has no guile, as the old King James said. Well, Nate asks a legitimate question because Jesus, he's being introduced. Philip introduces Nathaniel, and he's bringing him to Jesus. And Jesus tells Nate, he said, before Philip saw you, before Philip came and told you about me, I saw you sitting under a fig tree. Who can do that? Who does that? Only a mighty God. And Nate, he understood that, and he said, truly you are the Son of God. And Jesus said, oh, don't worry. My word's not his. You are going to see a whole lot more. You're going to see greater things. Well, the story now shifts to Cana and Galilee. Cana in Galilee, a wedding. The wedding coordinator for this particular event, he, should, he or she should have been fired. Why do you ask? Because the wine ran out. And we would look and go, okay, what? either more people came that were, that were expected or they had a bigger party than what they had planned on. All right, this is what's going on. And Jesus' mother, Mary, yes, the Mary that was in Bethlehem, they are told by Mary... Jesus, you need to fix this and, and just do what he says. Again, I'm skipping some things here, but just do what he says. And Jesus, they bring six stone jars to Jesus. Now, we would look, we're almost going, oh, they must be little jars like about that size, right? No, there, six of them, there was a minimum of 120 gallons of water that they poured in these jars, 120 gallons gallons. Well, hmm. gold metal wine comes out from these jars. They take it, they take it to the, the master of the feast, and he tastes it, and he said, goodness, Normally, the good wine's given out first when people can still taste it. But you brought the best last. Who does that? Only a mighty God. Do you need proof of who he is? John writes, I saw these things. Who can do these things? Only a mighty God. He goes then and he heals an official's son. He heals a lame man. He claims equality with God. 
And this doesn't go unnoticed by the religious elite in, in John 5. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's make sure we get this straight. He can heal folks. He can change H2O into wine. Fermented wine, too. He now feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. Who does that? Who does that? And since we know that all the things were made by him, he now shows that he can walk on what he created. He walks on water that same evening. And while he was walking on the water, when he jumps into the boat, when he crawls into the boat, he just gets into the boat. He calms the storm. Who does that? He forgives a sinning adulteress. He tells her, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Who forgives sins? Who does that? Who has the power to do that? He claims to be the light of the world. I'm skipping again. I know John skipped it, so I'm skipping it too. He then seals his fate. There is no confusion. If someone comes to you and said, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, take him here to John chapter 8. He's in an argument with the religious leaders, and they're yakking back and forth, and Jesus is going, I can't believe you men. You are so trying to me. They accuse him of being demon-possessed. And he ends the argument by saying this, beginning in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You're going, well, what, why is this a big deal? Why is this a big deal? I don't want you to turn here, but in Exodus 3, when Moses is before God in a burning bush, God will have fire in a tumbleweed. He's before God in a burning bush, and, he go, and Moses is making all the excuses in the world. What am I going to do? What am I going to say? They're not going to listen to me. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Who is he? Mighty God. He heals the eyes of a blind man. He calls himself the good shepherd. Again, who is the good shepherd according to Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. Then he deliberately waits four days after he knows that his friend, his good friend Lazarus has died. And Lazarus' sister knew, if only you would have come, you could have healed him. If only of you would have been here. And Jesus says, I know that. You know that. I am the resurrection and the life. Lazarus, been dead for four days inside a cave, decomposing. Why did he allow this to happen? To prove to a band of disciples, townspeople, and a watching nation, and to those who would come after them, that he is the resurrection and the life. He calls his friend out of the tomb. He comes out. This one, this man, this mighty God has the power over creation, disease, nature, and even death. Are you beginning to see how foolish we are when we only consider Advent as being a time where we give gifts, we smell trees, and we have lights? when we only give a slight nod to a baby in a manger and then go to the next holiday party? Church, this son who is given is the Lord of glory. But I'd be remiss to leave the story of our Lord at this awesome point in history where he raised a man from death. You're going, what are you, what are you thinking? I, I want to show us another side of this God. He can create, he can heal, he can raise the dead. He then is seen coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling a prophecy. That your king will come on a foal of a donkey. A deliberate action being a clear sign that he is the coming king of Israel. But this king, don't miss this, this mighty God then takes upon himself the role of even more. He takes the role of a servant. 
He takes his outer garment out, wraps it around himself, and washes the feet of his friends, of his disciples. This mighty God is a friend to sinners. This mighty God showing us how to live before each other in service to each other. The very next day, dying on a cross, instead of washing feet, washing the sins away for all of those who would believe and receive him. Our growth group kids recited this particular phrase last Wednesday evening. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We'll finish by asking the question, why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is mighty God? You know, many times during the Christmas season, movies come out when we were able to go to to movie theaters. And I'm not talking about Christmas movies. I'm talking about action movies. I'm talking about shoot-em-up hero movies, okay? So all these things came out. And, you know, ones that have heroes in them. And... They normally save the world in about an hour and three quarters to two hours. They're able to do that. And then at the end, most of the time, they get the girl too. But in real life, it's different. How, you say? How, how, how is it different? In real life, there is a hero that gets the job done. And he's not a hero that needs a sequel. What this hero, this hero, this warrior has accomplished is final. It's done. It settles the issue of life over death finally and forever. As Isaiah wrote, he has several names that describe his capacity to finish the task that was planned before the world began. And he will satisfy the longing of your souls, the darkness as we read earlier. The compelling name that we viewed today, mighty God, A man named Joe Stoll writes, and I'll quote him. Mighty God describes Jesus, who is the ultimate of heroes, infinitely strong and eternally mighty. But that extends far beyond bulging biceps and quick trigger fingers. In fact, in the original language, this name meant something far more specific. It's the name Ilgabar, the warrior god, the hero who will always prevail. It's the name for God who was used in the song Moses found in in Exodus 15. The Israelites have just seen God at war. 
He's brought a series of 10 miraculous plagues to Pharaoh, plagues that each, by the way, debunked a specific God of the Egyptians. I'll go off here. God was attacking each one of the Egyptian deities. Each one. He goes on to say, well, the Egyptians, they worshiped the frog god. The warrior god brought hordes of frogs. It's kind of like he said, you like frogs? Watch this. And the Egyptians worshiped the Nile, so the warrior god turned it into blood. And now Moses and the people are singing because the warrior god, El Gabor, has allowed his people to cross the Red Sea on dry land before pouring the waters over the pursuing Egyptian army. This is real. These are not fairy tales. This happened. And he goes on, he says, what I find staggering about this name being included in the prophecy of the Messiah is that Jesus is the El Gabor, the mighty God in the flesh, actually indwelling in us, dwelling in us. He's not just come... He's not just some fictional wonder of a movie producer's imagination. And as the ultimate hero, he would face the hordes of hell, sin, and death on our behalf and emerge as the victorious champion over our greatest enemy. Close quote. That's why it matters. The mighty God the son that is given for us have you believed have you bowed your knee he is much more than a baby in a manger he is mighty 